Buried is produced and distributed by KETR.org and is presented uninterrupted thanks to the support of its fans and listeners. Become a supporter today when you visit KETR.org and click Donate. One of the last photos of Carrie Mae Parker ever taken, if not the last one, is a mugshot from her arrest shortly before she disappeared in early 1991. But we haven't talked much about the people who put her in jail. This episode is about them. KETR Public Radio in Northeast Texas. I'm George Hale, and this is Buried, an investigative podcast and radio series about the 1991 disappearance of Carrie Mae Parker and about the people she encountered while in custody of the Hunt County Sheriff's Office. doesn't seem like that big of a deal. One night in jail. It really was one night. Carrie didn't get arrested until late afternoon on February 21st, 1991. She was out before 11 a.m. the next day, facing pretty minor charges relating to traffic offenses. But since there's so little we know with certainty about the days and weeks surrounding Carrie's disappearance, her arrest offers an opportunity to find recorded, concrete information a quick snapshot and only weeks before she vanished. In this episode, we're going to take a close look at the individuals surrounding her those 18 hours. Since 2017, KETR has compiled a trove of police, county, and jail records relating to the arrest, including confidential information about the vehicle she was driving. We also tried to look into the backgrounds of each person involved. As a result, We've been able to create a sort of skeleton outline of the ordeal, which began at 4.50 p.m. on a Thursday and ended the next morning at 10.45. Taken together, a disturbing pattern emerges. Nearly every person involved in Carrie's arrest and processing has since been accused, and in several cases charged or convicted, of crimes or egregious misconduct relating to their official duties. In two cases, The misconduct targeted women during the most vulnerable moments of their lives. And um, so I remember being at my dad's and he get a phone call that my sister was in jail. And I remember it because it was my birthday. What's your birthday? February 21st. February 21st, 1991 was a Thursday. We don't really know what Carrie was doing at 4.50 p.m., but we know where she was, at the Easy Mart convenience store in Quinlan, Texas. Within 10 minutes, she would be in custody of the police department for the first time in her life. This setting is particularly significant for Carrie's family, and especially her older brother, Glenn. It's the last place that he saw her, crying as she described a violent encounter with Cody Songer, 
she dated shortly before going missing. Um, and she ended up getting out um, the next day. I do know how she got out of jail. It was on a PR bond. Personal, Personal reconnaissance. Yeah. And do you want to see jail for just some uh, tickets? Okay. Just some tickets she didn't pay. Carrie's sister Patricia pointed me toward an online summary of the arrest during our first meeting. We also obtained a handwritten report from the arresting officer. The 4:50 p.m. time comes from his report, which we initially got in a redacted format from the city of Quinlan. Even in its redacted form, there's a lot we can learn. Right away, we see things that might have been going on in Carrie's life in ways unrelated to her arrest. For instance, this document lists her job status as unemployed. That would contradict her family's timeline, that she went missing on Sunday, March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day, after working the night shift at a filter factory in a neighboring county. At the same time, I can see why she might not want to risk letting work find out about her arrest, if she could avoid it anyway. But that's what the report says. Unemployed. Okay. So, and plus all those arrests and stuff, they weren't for that. No, they were all for tra- traffic violations. <laughs> Matter of fact, um, she had had a wreck or something other and got them tickets. Yeah. The guy wanted to sue her, I remember, um, for the damages on his vehicle. Mm-hmm. I don't know whatever became of that. Well, but uh, too, mm-hmm. Among the other details at the start of the report, She's using her dad's address, which is a post office box, before the area converted street addresses. No alias or nicknames like the rest of Carrie's friends and like everyone else back then. Age 23, birthplace Dallas, race white, sex female, eyes blue, hair brown, weight 115, and perhaps her most distinguishing feature, height, 5 feet 10 inches. It mentions a scar on her left arm. I've heard that story before. She cut herself by breaking a window after accidentally locking her son Brian inside a house. The initial report is ambiguous about charges. It just says city warrants. But Carrie's sister Patricia discovered a few years ago that Carrie had unpaid tickets in a couple counties, including a few incidents not long before her arrest. As for what she was driving, the license plate number is redacted, but it lists her car as a 1980 Buick. Four doors, gray. No other details. This is important, though, because it backs up information that few aside from Patricia seem to recall. That Carrie wasn't driving a Camaro when she went missing. And I know they impounded her car, um, which was, I believe it was like a gray-blue, because I remember when she got it, she got it with her income tax. Um... And she was all happy, you know, that she yeah. had bought it and she didn't know anything on it. And, you know, I was happy for her. Yeah. The report um, also points to something else that few aside from members of Carrie's family maintain. A Quinlan City police officer, Ronnie Faust, had some sort of relationship with Carrie and likely had information about her disappearance. Police officer yeah. that arrested Carrie. This guy right here. He's the cop that Carrie's family was begging Hunt County investigators to interview as his health declined. They believed he had information about Carrie that he took to the grave. Jeff Haynes, cold case investigator in charge of Carrie's case, maintains that he was unable to locate Faust due to medical privacy laws. Whether he had any more information about Carrie outside of his job duties on February 21st isn't clear. So... The only information we're going to get out of Faust is the paragraph he jotted down about Carrie's arrest. I'll make sure this document gets online, but here's the gist of it for now. 
Officer Faust writes that approximately 4.50 p.m. he observed a white female at the Easy Mart. I guess he recognized her because it says next that he knew she had city warrants out of Quinlan. Faust called dispatch, which confirmed, and he rolled up to Easy Mart 10 minutes later. It says he identified Carrie and placed her into custody and transported her to the Quinlan Police Department. The final three lines refer to two others in the Hunt County law enforcement and judicial system. I'll get to them in just a second. First, we need to go back in time to the first time I met Carrie's older brother, Glenn. All right, Bob, we'll get the dog. Come on, Monkey. Come on. I know you don't like bringing people in the house. I can't help that. <laughs> first of all, let me just give you my card for it. So you ever need to You're pretty it. safe anyway. Me? Most of us rednecks around here, we keep guns in the house, so. Oh, yeah. And you <laughs> ain't know? too much worried about. Oh, you've got guns in the house. Best don't go there. It's all right. I'm used to guns in the house. Yeah, I come from a long family of rednecks, so. Glenn didn't know Ronnie Faust was the arresting officer, but he knew the officer's name for a few reasons. One is that his father repeatedly mentioned a police officer named Ronnie being connected to Carrie. Did he, he arrested Carrie in February of the year she went missing, right? Uh, really, I don't know. Family members have gone back and forth over the years about whether he was talking about Ronnie Faust or Ronnie Knoll, N-O-E-L. They were both on the force in Quinlan during the 1990s. We know for sure that Carrie had a relationship with at least one of them. Do you know if she had any kind of relationship with him? No. Because I think your sister thinks she did. Well, it was another Ronnie that used to work. But I can't remember what his last name was. Oh, okay. Because, I'll show you, I have a, I have a rest record for Carrie. This other guy was a... Uh, Younger, younger than Ronnie Fox. Um, but wouldn't he be about her age? Yes, but Ronnie Fox is older. Uh, let's see. He's older than me. Really? Yes. I thought that he was your age or younger. Let's see. No. Let me show you something here. But here's. The guy that she had a relationship with was named Ronnie, but it wasn't Fouts. I can't remember. It's been too many years ago. Okay. Patricia remembers Carrie dating him in 1990, likely behind Cody's back while he was in jail that year. Noel was famously kicked off the force decades ago after appearing on an afternoon talk show with a teenage girl he considered to be his girlfriend. Uh, so anyway, here's the your sister's arrested on... Uh, um, 21st of February, it looks like, and um, the arresting officer is... That was right before. Yeah. It's crazy, right? Coincidence. And then look, arrested by... Files. Ain't that kind of funny? My daddy mentioned him. Faust eventually became the chief of police. But there are many in the area who claim to have witnessed some unusual behavior at different points in Faust's career. Glenn is one of them. He claims to have witnessed Faust selling drugs, and he's not the only person to have told me about Faust at least being present at places drugs were being sold. And I'm going to tell you something right now. 
I really don't give a damn who knows. I know what I saw, and I know what he done. But then again, he's a police officer. So what do you mean what he did? What well, he showed my girlfriend dope. I asked people working in law enforcement during the 1990s what they thought of these claims. and got a few different answers. One of them, proposed by Constable Cullen Smith's former Deputy Jim Davenport, is that sting operations have been going down in Southern Hunt County for decades. He said that if these people are correct about what they saw, it doesn't necessarily mean Faust was doing anything illegal. So I just seen it one time. But that's all it takes this one time. Well, what did you see? My girlfriend went in and bought the dope. Oh, you were with her? And the man was in, yeah, oh. I was in the car. When was that? And he, this has been probably about eight years ago. Okay, so yeah. So he didn't stop back then. And he had a uniform on and she's going in to buy some dope. So what's that tell you? A different law enforcement official, who I'll introduce later in this episode, says Faust smoked pot while battling cancer, which definitely wasn't allowed, but who cares about that? I also know that Cody considered Faust one of his best friends, which is an odd pairing for a police chief and a drug dealer, but good for them. Just last week, I met a woman in Hunt County who told me that Faust used speed at parties they attended together. That person is very anti-drugs these days, but she still said Faust was a good man, and she sincerely doubted he would be involved in selling drugs. So really, that's kind of a connection right there. We can't ask Officer Faust himself about why people say these things. And there's certainly no hard evidence, aside from claims by people who were around back then, when I wasn't. I believe that Glenn believes he witnessed Faust sell drugs, but none of that really matters even if he didn't. The reason I mention it here is not to allege misconduct on Faust's part, but rather to highlight where some of the distrust between Carrie's family and law enforcement began. Between what my dad said and this right here, then the fact that Cody is supposed to have an involvement with him. Is she still living in the lie or just your ex-girlfriend? Yeah, she's still alive. Do you think she might be willing to talk to me about him? Do you know her well, or is it awkward to call her? She probably wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have to use her name or voice or anything, you know, maybe just to talk about just the facts, you know? I could leave her out of it. Because they got an old saying down here, snitches end up in ditches. Yeah, I understand. Hey, used to look, I'd get pulled over or something like that, or I'd be in a particular place where he'd show up, he would always give me the strangest looks. Sort of like he knew something I didn't know. And he you know, you know how somebody kind of mean mugs you and kind of yeah. looking at you like they know something you don't know? And God always gave me a creeps. Really? I often said if I ever got pulled by him, I wouldn't get in the car with him. I'd make him call a state trooper out. Really? I wouldn't let him get me in the back of that car, I don't know. I do need to point out, in fairness to Faust, that he had arrested Glenn at least once. And on top of that, there's this other thing. I'll let Glenn explain. And I knew something was crooked about him before my sister came up missing, because me and my wife had gotten in an argument, and she was drinking, and I took the drink away from her because she was getting out of hand until she kind of 
chill and she grabs my gun, goes in the bathroom, closes the door. Well, I'm thinking she's trying to kill herself, so I ended up kicking, trying to kick the door, and all of a sudden you hear a boom, boom, boom. Uh, I'm like, <laughs> bam! <laughs> Kicked it in, came in, slapped her, and grabbed the hand out of her hand. Well, they called a cop. One of them was Ronnie Fouts. And there was another blonde-headed guy, but I can't remember his name. That was his sidekick, or what you call partner. Yeah. I ended up going to jail for a little while. Mr. Mayor Jones, you know it wasn't nothing, sir. Well, you'd hit her too, she's shooting it. I thought she'd gonna kill herself. I hit her, hit her, the days or a minute where I could grab the gun off her hand. She was a big girl. 245 pounds, I'm 150 pounds. She body slammed me. Anyway, he tried to get with my wife. Ronnie? while he was on the place for us. And I'm like, that might have been why he kind of looking at me funny because my wife told me about it when I got out. I'm like, what? Cop take me, no wonder he took me to jail. He over here trying to get rid of me where he could get with you. <laughs> you know, that, that sorry, man. While I think Glenn is half joking about Faust and his wife, the next person Carrie encountered after Faust on the day she was arrested was reprimanded by a state board for doing just that, sleeping with a woman after arresting her husband. He comes up in the final three lines of Faust's report that I mentioned earlier. Faust concludes by saying that the local justice of the peace arraigned Carrie, and then a Hunt County officer with the badge number 416 transported her to the Hunt County Criminal Justice Center, that's the jail in Greenville, which is the seat of Hunt County and where the sheriff's office is based. However, the part about Officer 416 is scratched out, and the end of the report is made to read that the judge arraigned Carrie, followed by, quote, and then to Hunt County Criminal Justice Center. We obtained another version of the arrest report from the sheriff's office. They're supposed to be carbon copies or photocopies of whatever the original report said. But the sheriff's office's version is slightly different. The part about Officer 416 is crossed out with only one line, as opposed to two lines in the city and police department's records. Not suggesting there's anything nefarious going on here, at least not based on that discrepancy alone, but it's at least useful for indicating which document was altered most recently. The city's version, not the county's. So, forget about Officer 416 is what I think the report is saying, but that would mean the judge in Quinlan left his office and drove the police department's detainee himself to the jail in another city half an hour away and at night. That doesn't sound right either. However Carrie got to the jail, the county's records indicate she was booked in an hour and a half later. So, to recap, she was spotted at 4.50 p.m. at Easy Mart, arrested slash transferred to Quinlan Police Station at 5 p.m. That would leave, at maximum, an hour and 20 minutes for her to be arraigned by the Justice of the Peace and then transported by someone to the jail. The constable at the time was named Cullen Smith. We've talked about him on numerous occasions. He died in 2008, so everything I've heard about him is secondhand. Howard Parker claimed to have filed a missing person report with Smith. Carrie's children and grandchildren say the two men were close. Something I've wondered since beginning this project is how much information Howard truly had about Ronnie Faust and Dan Robertson, and how much of it rubbed off on him from his friend Cullen. Despite working closely with them, Smith operated as if Faust and Robertson were political enemies, and I suspect the feeling was mutual. Eventually, 
Faust and Robertson sued Cullen for slander, although the case was later withdrawn. Hey. Hey. Hey, sir. Yeah, I'm here for Rhonda. Rhonda? You calling me? Hey, I'm George. Hi, George. How you doing? Good. Chief McKeon. Great to meet you. Come on in. Let me see what I can do. Thank you. Rhonda McKeon is the police chief in Hawk Cove, the tiny town on Lake Tawakany that hosted the infamous party where Carrie threw a drink in Cody's face after he told her he was going to sleep with Cactus. Man, where to begin? So, in... The main thing I'm working on is a story about a lady who went missing in Quinlan in 1991. Have you ever heard that name of Carrie Parker before? Yes. So finally, somebody who's heard of her. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yes, I have heard of that. In fact, we've gotten um, questions from people wanting to know what we're doing about it. And I said, well, hmm. um, Hawk Cove Police Department didn't have anything to do with that. Right. <clears throat> I'm sure it was Hunt County. Yeah, it was. Obviously, if I had some information, I would immediately get in contact with an investigator there. Yeah. You'll notice in a moment that unlike every other police officer you've heard so far on this podcast, Rhonda jumped at the opportunity to help us uncover any information we could about Carrie's case. More times than I can count, she's explained that it's her responsibility in a sense, although she'd still defer to the sheriff's office. Kind of like that fireman. I know, it's scary, right? That someone can just disappear and you can't locate them. I had an incident recently with one of our residents uh, moved to Odessa, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, they reported her as a missing person there on the 1st of July. Mm-hmm. Within 12 days, Odessa PD, actually it was Ector County Sheriff's Department, I think is the one that actually took the report. Within 12 days, they had unassigned an investigator to it. So. I just remember telling my family members stuff, please God, if I go missing, don't let it be in Odessa, Texas, where I'm so insignificant that we don't even have an investigator assigned to the case. Now, she's been since located, yeah. um, but I pitched a bit. Yeah. And I'm not the kind of chief that gets to sit here all the time. That's why my desk looks like it. <laughs> but we can't keep up. We're too small. We cannot keep up. Larger agencies, at least they have somebody, you know, this, I mean, I'm sure it's got to work this way that if you have a missing person, then you've got somebody that's available right then to take that report and get on it. And, uh, I would, you know, I would get right on it. Yeah. But uh, I was hoping Rhonda might be able to help me locate the site of the party, which is at a trailer owned by Jim Wilburn. At someone in, they said Jim Wilburn's house. Does that ring a bell? It would have been before, way before you were here. Jim Wilburn. Mm-hmm. That sounds like there was somebody by that name over on Hayes Circle. He's dead now, though. He died in a... I don't know. There's not a junior? There could be. 414, If I'm getting that name right. Um, so, and I don't even know if it's his property. The, uh, you know, they just said it was over at Jim Wilbur's place. So. The conversation shifted, as it often does in Hot Cove, to drugs and addiction. I'm sure most days that doesn't do much to lighten the mood, but Rhonda was feeling more inspired than usual after returning from a conference for police chiefs. Drugs, drugs, drugs. Yeah, it's all down here. We have a real bad reputation for it. This whole side of the county has a real bad reputation for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just got back from chief school week before last in San Antonio. I wish they did it every year because I come back just feeling enlightened, yeah. <clears throat> you know, knowledgeable, the light at the end of the tunnel kind of feeling. Because after two years of just you know, beating the pavement, I just feel like I'm 
I'm obsolete. You know, I feel like I'm not accomplishing what I came here to do. Yeah. Uh, because these people, I mean, they call the police because the dog barks next door. <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, dogs bark. You know, and if, if it's an excessive thing, then okay, yeah, sure. we have an issue. If it's bothering you, it's a problem. But you guys are calling me at 3 o'clock in the morning because somebody's dog is barking. <laughs> you know, so I have to get up and go over there and say, okay, so the dog is barking. You know, just dumb stuff. Yeah. And uh, to me, it seems dumb. But at any rate, I came back from chief school thinking, you know, some of the officers in the area, how they, they badmouth each other. Having a thin blue line, like why are we not lifting each other up? Why are we not helping yeah. each other? And it's so hard when we get bogged down in our day-to-day -day stuff to remember, hey, I, I need to get over there with West Walkney, mm -hmm. and we need to share this information. Yeah. And I need to go to Quinlan, I need to share this information. Because if that had been happening, Terry Parker may likely have been you located want, by now. You want me to, you want to prove of that? Let me tell you. Uh, her family, they say they reported her missing to the constable at the time in Quinlan, uh, Colin Smith. And uh, that he told them, don't talk to other police about it, let me handle it. Well, he died without ever having sharing that, shared the information, so that it never reached the right authorities. They didn't find this out until 2010 that she wasn't formally reported missing ever. And so that's what makes this case so unusual is, uh -huh. can you imagine? It's well, he wanted to... Uh be in the newspaper. Rhonda moved to Texas in the late 1980s along with her young children. She joined the police academy and eventually became an officer in West Tuakini, perhaps the most notoriously rowdy town at Tuakini back then. Rhonda told me that she had to essentially jump through hoops to prove herself to the boys club running law enforcement in Southern Hunt County. She also learned earlier, before even graduating from the academy, that the men in charge were willing to use her as a pawn if it served their political interests. Cullen Smith tried to end her career before it even began, in an apparent attempt to put pressure on the justice of the peace who came after Dan Robertson. He wanted to do these good things. He wanted to be, I mean, I had many encounters with him. He almost cost me my career with For his what? little antics. What about? Um, he had me arrested. <laughs> For what? Uh, him and Keith Stevens. Who's that? And, uh, he was a deputy constable okay. that worked for Cullen Smith. And they... Uh, Carl Keck was the judge back then, mm -hmm. and supposedly, from what the judge told me, uh, about seven default judgments were entered in against people for not showing up for court. Mm -hmm. And when he went back and checked with seven people, all of them said that they had not received the service. They had right. never been notified. Right. So he filed <coughs> against them with the Judicial Review Commission. Well, at that time, I was in the academy out in Tyler. And I have standing orders as a civil processor, you know, locally, uh, let's see, Hunt County, Range County, Kaufman County. And weirdly, Cullen Smith is the one that actually introduced me to that, that got me into it. Mm -hmm. Well, the judge called me and asked me if I would serve his process while they were going through all of that, mm -hmm. you know, until the Judicial Review Commission or whatever made their decision. And I said, sure. And uh, Cullen Smith came out there on one of the scenes and I had warrants for this guy's arrest, and I was not a certified peace officer. They were soft copies of the warrants already been entered in Hunt County. So he started saying, well, are you identifying yourself as a police officer? No, sir, I've identified myself as an officer of the court, which is exactly what I am. Mm -hmm. And he you, you can't have those. I said, well, the judge gave them to me. I think he thought you might show up, and since you are a certified peace officer, here you go. Yeah. Well, he refused to serve them on the guy, <coughs> and uh, 
told me to put my hands on this car. It's probably 100 degrees outside. When I went to put my I put my hands down, it was hot. Yeah. And I jumped like that. Cullen got his gun out. And I was like, damn, Cullen, you going to shoot me? Man, don't shoot me. You know. Oh, Lord. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was just, he turned into a tyrant. What it was is he was pissed off because I was working for Judge Keck. And him and Judge Keck were fighting with each other. Right. And I said, I could care less. At that time, sure. my kids were in school. I'm a single mom. I'm yeah. trying to get to the academy. I don't care. But he actually had me arrested <coughs> for oh uh, impersonating a public servant, which is a third-degree felony. Yeah. It's no serious. Of course, it didn't go anywhere, but yeah. it did get me kicked out of the academy. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I was like, uh, okay, now you're messing with my stuff. Yeah. You know, I worked very hard. I was at the end of that academy. And the guy came in, and he goes, well, you know, ethically, I mean, if I let you stay, I have to let everybody else stay. And I said, okay, you change how everybody looks at the criminal justice system. Just because you're arrested does not mean you're convicted, yeah. nor does it mean that you're guilty, because I'm not guilty of that. Yeah. I got caught up in somebody else's political turbulence. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? I needed the money, so I didn't even look at that. I never, ever thought in a million years that something like that could happen. Right. And I hadn't been down here long. I moved out here from Irving. And this place was a culture shock, and that didn't help. I was yeah. like, okay, so now you've had me arrested on a felony charge, you know. Well, and at that time, me. I was riding with the chief over in Lone Oak, and uh, he's the one that called me. He goes, yeah, we might not want to ride out tonight. And I said, why is that, sir? And he goes, we have felony warrants. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> me? Like, are you kidding? I don't get in trouble. Yeah. And uh, sure enough. He sure did. Like I said, it it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. But uh, sure was humiliating and embarrassing. I bet. And uh, you <laughs> know, I, I went to the DA's office and I said, okay, I want to see a copy of the affidavit for the warrant against me. G.W. Wolford was down there in those days, and he said, I don't have to give you that. You you have to have an attorney. And I said, well, uh, your court is going to appoint me an attorney mm -hmm. at such time as you formally charge me, which of course they never did. Right. You know, that's crazy. And uh, I never went in jail because Judge Keck arraigned me. They even tried to undo that. And I said, let me tell you what, y'all go ahead and do that. I'll have every news crew in the nation down here to podunk USA because you guys are not Gestapo's. Yeah. You know, that's not even legal because the the sheriff himself came out and he goes, I'm gonna see to it that you get under that prison. He said, that's a first-degree felony. I said, actually, I think it's Penal Code 3711, and it's a, it's a third-degree felony. Oh, you think you know everything? Well, no, sir, but I just had that class, so. <laughs> yeah, you happen to be, to be my fresh. Mind, <laughs> what sheriff know? was that back then? It was before me. Anderson. Anderson, okay. Don Anderson. Yeah, that's right. And I'll never forget it, because I was really starting to have a second thought about coming, uh, no you kidding. know, staying here. Yeah. <clears throat> but then I kind of got this little bug that bit me that said you know what i don't know if it's a woman thing if they don't you know they don't want a female here Possibly. or you know really because they're all the old I'm you not know, old school boys and uh, i really don't know what was going on but i said guess what pal you ain't running me out of here yeah you know so i stayed you know but the last time i encountered cullen smith was uh, after all that stuff had happened, I pulled up to the old Scotty's in West Walking and he was out there pumping gas and I pulled up and I said, well, hello, Constable Smith. You know, and he went to shake his hand and I said, I'm Rhonda McKeehan. Boy, he jerked that hand back and I just Wouldn't looked at him. Wouldn't shake your hand? Wouldn't shake my hand. Whoa, because he had me arrested. You well, know? you still shake somebody's hand you arrested me. He wouldn't shake my hand. I'd have shook his hand because I was going to go, ha ha, didn't work. You know, you didn't have nothing. I didn't do anything illegal. I didn't do anything wrong. It was, but... You know, if you're willing to go that far and take it personally, 
try to damage somebody's career just because you don't like the judge or whatever. It kind of makes me wonder if he didn't falsify that service. And I don't remember the outcome of that, but I do know that he stayed the constable after that. And Which these old town people, oh, I mean, they everybody just loved Cullen yeah, Smith. They talk about him like he's just the greatest thing ever. Yeah, but I'll be honest with you, I, you know, because of what he did to me, I didn't, yeah, you know, I didn't, you know, I saw a different side of him yeah. than what all these older people saw. And uh, the last year that he was on the ballot, he was dead. Yeah, he did. And his name was on the ballot, and I voted for him. <laughs> And I said, "Cause and I said, yep. Only way I'd vote for that son of a bitch is if he was dead. Check that box, you know. So yeah, that's why I did it. Kind of a coup de grace. See you <laughs> round, pal. That he would keep stuff to himself. Yes, he would. Yeah. He he did do that, and that's why all this, you know, got so cockamamie. That's not the first time I've heard of him doing such stuff. He certainly didn't tell anybody of his action out there that day." drawing a gun on me and threatening to shoot me because the car hood was hot That's crazy. Um, you know just his behavior and i was like dude you probably you need to hang it up you really do yeah <clears throat> oh, you think that you're young you know everything you know and i was like no sir that's it's not it i'm just saying you know everything. it's weird though all right i'm coming yeah they're hollering That's time fine. to go so good to know not everybody has fond memories of cullen which brings me back to ronnie faust whose son i met one day after I returned from trying to meet Cody Songer in Oklahoma. Did you know where Jim Wilbur lived? Uh, that's it. Yeah, where I told you at. It's uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you did. Oh, oh right, because his house is the one that hosted the party. Yeah, it, yeah. It was probably... That's where the old store was, man. It was like, I want to say four or five houses down. It's right when the tree line started digging in. Mm -hmm. And his house is on the right. On the right side of the road? Yes, sir. And what, what kind of house was it? Trailer or just... Cody tried to tell me over the phone how to find the property that hosted the party. I took his directions to Rhonda, jumped in the passenger side of her hey, police truck. Yes, sir. We combed the tiny town as her deputy at Hawk Cove HQ searched property records. Jim Wilburn, right? Uh-huh. Every once in a while, he would come on the radio to announce a possible lead. Hey, Sterling. Remember a guy that used to live around here that's probably passed away now by the name of Jim Wilburn? They did this on top of yeah, everything else they were doing that day. I think so, but I can't remember. I can't be for sure though. I, I do remember the name. I wasn't used to police in Hunt County even tolerating my curiosity, so this was a welcome development. We eventually found the spot, but not that day. They were saying it was by where the old store used to be. Yeah, I think it's back out that way. So. Amy? So where was the old store? Are they talking about Nick's Hideaway? Nick's Hideaway? Rhonda also took the initiative helping us find people Cody said were at the party, calling around to other police departments and explaining the situation. Oh, not me. No, we don't have a warrant for him. We're looking for him. Um, I guess I can tell him right in connection with the missing lady by the name of Carrie Parker. That's because, that's because it was a really long time ago. That, that, yeah, and there was a party that was attended where she was at the party. And from what we can gather, that was one of the last places that she was ever seen. And, uh, yeah, so we're... Uh, family members have been looking for her all this time. When did she go missing, George? 1991. 1991. 
While we waited on property searches, Rhonda pointed out some of Hot Cove's landmarks. Oh, I really don't want to drive in that. <laughs> Do you even know you have a reason to? Joey Russell lives here. His dad, I can't remember his first name, but his last name is Russell. There used to be some mobile homes right over here. His dad ran over some guy and killed him. The story I heard was he ran over him and then backed over him again and killed him. He went to prison for murder. He lives right here. He's out of prison now. He just got out like this past year. So what's odd, if I could talk to them, um, they probably know them. I mean, he's been yeah. here that long. Yeah. From whatever whatever year that happened. Yeah. Because there used to be some other mobile homes over there that are no longer here. Maybe. Rhonda also drove us over to check out the site of an oil spill that it was still being cleaned up. You just cannot see it. Um, we've already uh, legally disposed of the other barrel. Everything was transferred into that. Like I said, so we still got a little cleanup to do. Mm-hmm. Legally, this is the property owner's responsibility. Right. Now, he bought this place, and it was an atrocious mess. Still looks pretty poor right now, but if you saw it before he bought it, um, yeah. he's still having to, he's still working on it, you yeah. know. It's a young guy that works for us. In fact, it's Preston Faust. His dad used to be a police chief in Quinlan for a long time, Ronnie Faust. Really? Yeah, Ronnie died a few years back from cancer. Well, I know a lot about Ronnie Faust. What's, Do you really? Well, See the black? That's, wait, so that's his house then? So, but this is the poor little town of Hawk Cove <laughs> that we are working so hard to clean up. Yeah. And uh, Preston Faust got in a bunch of trouble. He wanted to be a police officer when he was a kid, but then he grew up and found drugs right. and bad people. So he got in trouble, went to prison, um, got out of prison. Uh, it's probably been a year ago. Him and his little wife and he decided they'd go on a meth spree together. <laughs> and so they went out and got high. She was, she's not been a drug addict, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Oh, no, she, she just loves him, so she was just doing what he wanted. And these kids have jumped backwards naked through fiery hoops. They've gone to all the classes. They just got their kids back about a month ago. Right. And they live in that trailer where the oil spill was. Okay. And uh, Preston works for us here in the city. Uh, he does wastewater. He's got his, in fact, they're fixing to go take a bunch of tests and stuff for their licenses. And, uh, well, let me tell you why I'm interested in talking to him maybe sometime. His dad, arrested Carrie Parker three weeks before she went missing. Really? Mm-hmm. And I have the police report for it. It's never been really? seen. Never been seen, apparently, until a week ago. Really? <laughs> yep. And uh, Preston might actually know something. Right. And Ronnie, Ronnie Faust uh, died before uh, Detective Haynes could get to him because he had cancer, you know? But yeah. Detective Haynes was looking for him even in the hospital. Because wow. uh, Carrie Parker's sister, I think, had told him, you really got to talk to this guy, you really got to talk to him, and uh, Jeff Haynes said that uh, he was trying to, you know, because HIPAA laws and whatever, he couldn't figure it out that easily, and then said he looked in the obituary and he was dead, but he was, anyway, but, so, you know, it drives her crazy that, you know, uh, they barely missed him or whatever, because... That's sad. Yeah, but who knows, maybe he would know something. Uh, we'll go down, see if the guys are down here, I'll introduce you to Preston. So, did you know Ronnie Faust at all? Yeah. Did you yeah. think he was a pretty straight shooting good job for the guy? Do I have to answer that? <laughs> no, but 
I'll tell you what. I'd love to know if people who talk to me about him aren't crazy. He was very nice to me. I never had any problems with him, but I did hear a lot of stories. Um, sadly, I hear a lot of stories about myself. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a... Cody, when I met him, he, I told him about, or I can't remember how it came up, but I told him that Ronnie Faust died. Mm-hmm. He said he was just shocked and he was so sad to hear that. He said that Ronnie Faust is one of his best friends. Really? Yeah, which I thought was weird because... Well, if he was one of his best friends, how come he didn't know that he had cancer and was dying? Well, this was, I think, way back then, you know. Oh. When Cody was down here. No, no, oh, so, look yeah. here. So, so I was looking forward anyway, to. I thought that was interesting because uh, maybe, I don't know. introduce you to this guy right here. This is Preston Faust. I'm George. How's it going? We're, I'm a reporter and she's helping me try to find this house where... You ever heard of Carrie Parker? Yes, actually I have. Yeah? Okay. Your dad arrested her three weeks before she went missing. Yep. Uh, do you know anything about her? Or what? No. Yeah. How do you know my dad? I don't know your dad at all. I just saw in the records. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I no. didn't know it was my dad. She. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh... uh yeah. Well, uh, I just what my mom still shares her missing stuff. I figured Preston would jump at the opportunity to discuss the real Ronnie Faust. I also thought his mom would want to speak too. I never heard back from either of them. What I did hear later was that Preston was concerned about what we were going to report about his dad's ties to Carrie. I tried to reassure him at the time that my only interest is the fact that he arrested her, since it was so close to her disappearance. Not he had something to do with it. In any case, the result of their hesitancy means Faust's family's perspective is being left out of this conversation. I hope they reconsider. I wanted to ask Rhonda one more thing, which is if she knew how her old boss, Carl Keck, the justice of the peace who replaced Dan Robertson, passed away. He was found in 2010 in a field, and the sheriff's office said only that it wasn't a suspected murder. And I know he died strangely. So. Uh, from what I heard, he was on drugs, and yeah, his, uh, he definitely had some really reckless behavior, mm-hmm. even back when I was working for him. Because I remember going in and talking to him. There were dents in the desk where he'd go in there and cuss those girls and stuff. And I told him, I said, Carl, I'm going to tell you right now, a judge, I'll call you judge. But if you try to treat me like that, you're not going to like it. I'm not going to be treated poorly. You know, I need the money. I'm a single mom, trying to get myself through the academy, mm-hmm. raise my two kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't do bad stuff. I just need to get my education and, you know, so I can go to work. But I'm not going to put up with you disrespecting. I would never do that to you. But I remember having to go over and have him sign some papers one time and he pulled a drunk the night before, came running out the front door in his underwear. And I'm over here going, ah, just sign them. <laughs> You know, just sign them. And so, honestly, I wanted to just get done and get out of it. Yeah. Because uh, I didn't want to be associated with it. But um, I know he was doing a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> He was doing drugs. and. Rhonda told me that Keck had difficulties with drugs and alcohol going back all the way to the late 90s at least. She suspected that's how he died. Later that summer, I got a hold of the autopsy report by the Dallas Medical Examiner. Rhonda's suspicions were right on. Former judge's cause of death was listed as toxic effects of methamphetamine. Pretty weird to be reporting that for the first time here, nine years later. 
but the sheriff was telling the truth. It wasn't murder. Eleven months to the day after Carrie Parker was arrested, Hunt County police officer arrested a young woman about Carrie's age and for a similar cause, outstanding traffic violations. After handling things at the West Tawakoni Police Department, Dan Robertson, the local justice of the peace, arrived and told her she was under arrest on an outstanding warrant for writing a hot check. To get out of jail, they set up some kind of payment scheme in which the woman or a friend would go to Robertson's office and pay portions of the $1,600 she owed for the check. After getting behind on payments, she says, Robertson summoned her to his office to demand the money. What happened next is disputed, but the woman wrote in a sworn affidavit that Robertson was drunk, that he called her a whore, and he sent her to jail for three days over the arguments that erupted in his courtroom. There was a piece of paper in here. This account is among 75 pages of allegations of improper behavior against the judge, released in 1995 by an independent state agency responsible for investigating allegations of judicial misconduct and for disciplining judges. This is when I was researching which one might have been him. Yeah. Till I found his ass. Yeah. Um. So he seems like a very important person. Oh he, yes. Yes. Here it is. This is how I found him. After our first interview. Carrie's sister, Patricia, sent me a copy of the State Commission on Judicial Conduct's report. So I asked for the public records Mm -hmm. in Austin, and that's how I got them documents. It took me about a month. Where my stuff? Where my paper? Yeah. You know, I kind of, I don't know if it's because my son is autistic, and um, I've always had to, like, lead him around by the ear, telling him (laughs) everything he needed to do. Um, is the reason why I am the way I am. But if I don't hear anything from you in a, in a reasonable amount of time, yeah. I'm wondering what's going on. I think they have like 20 days or something to respond usually. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I but it was past that. It was like a month or a little over a month. Yeah. So they had plenty of time. Nearly two years later, KETR obtained several hundred pages of depositions from people in Hunt County opposed to the judge. One of them was Cullen Smith, who was supposedly tight with Howard and helped investigate Carrie's disappearance. Nothing in either batch of documents contains information about Carrie, but Patricia sees the commission's reprimand as validation of claims by her dad that this judge had something to do with Carrie, or at least that Howard's reasons for speaking ill of him were valid. So I'll read this later, but this is information about this judge? Yes. And, like, what kind of stuff? Um, they about him um, arresting people for sleeping with people's wives that he's arrested and all kinds of stuff up in there. So who gave I went to the state uh, to Austin and um, asked him for it after I had to I had to Google for a hundred years, yeah. but I found him. I found something on his butt. I wasn't yeah. giving up. So this is So I asked for the um, documents. These are like his files from like, Austin. Like reprimand? Yes. Okay, it's pretty thick. Yes. Okay, that's that's really good. Thank you. Yes. I didn't know that existed. Oh. <laughs> I'll tell you, if it's out there, I'm going to look yeah. till I can't look no more. <laughs> I can see that. But, uh, now, I arrived late to this party. The antagonism between Patricia and Robertson, as well as his wife, had been incubating for quite some time. In fact, 
One of the very first disagreements Patricia and I had was when she showed me an accusatory message she sent to Robertson's wife, who, I can only assume, had nothing to do with any of this. And when I tried to contact him on Facebook, he shut all his shit down where I couldn't see it. Dan Robertson? Yes. And never responded to my stuff. Is he still alive? Yeah. Patricia sees Robertson's refusal to engage with her as suspicious. And she cites his blocking her on Facebook as further evidence of his hostility. Yeah, because I read that uh, she she said that he was going to help her get her stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's him. Yeah. Before anyone in Carrie's family knew about the commission's reprimand, her father Howard had claimed that Robertson had agreed to help Carrie move out of Cody's house. It was when Patricia started researching Dan that she stumbled upon news about the reprimand. She got in touch with the commission that published the report. In the reprimand's introduction, it notes that even though Robertson had left office before the commission's investigation was complete, it was issuing the reprimand anyway. Quote, The commission concluded that the actions of Judge Robertson were so egregious as to warrant public condemnation even after he has left the bench. Robertson has responded to all these allegations in writing, and we're going to go through the documents in further detail on the next episode of The Buried Lead with my producer Jared. But as far as Patricia goes... She's mainly been going off what she heard from her father as well as what's in the reprimand. But during searching for information about Robertson, Patricia would stumble upon a third piece of information in the form of a long-form article about drugs in Hunt County and supposed connections with government authorities. Quinlan, Hunt County people, that's all. When something bad happens, they start talking about the drugs. Yeah. That's the first thing that anybody talks about is how bad the drugs are. It's still. I know. I mean, I'm completely unrelated to your... Yes. Like I've heard many times people say, like, they think that the police uh, uh, were involved. Yeah. I, I don't know about now, but I, I know for a fact that they were when she went missing. And did you know that there was a, uh, let me see if I can find that document. Um, there was a, a big old huge investigation in uh, Greenville at East Systems. E-Systems. Did you know that? I don't even know what that is. E-Systems. Um, it's an aircraft mechanic place that I worked for. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can still find it, but if I can. Well, it's probably online, too, right? Well, it was. But then when I went to go try to find it again, mm-hmm. it seemed like it started disappearing. But there was a big old involving uh, E-Systems and, and why there should be some sort of... Uh, Um, The company that operates in Hunt County now goes by a different name, and when she first mentioned it, I wasn't even sure what she was talking about. The article in question appears to have been copied and pasted on various conspiracy-focused sites across the internet. I want to talk about it because I think it helps explain the deep roots of some of the antagonism toward Robertson. However, I definitely want to be clear that I'm not endorsing some of the wilder assertions about government-sanctioned drug smuggling. That is all a bit above my pay grade anyway. Definitely not the focus of my reporting on this podcast or anything else. Not that the company in question was doing itself any favors back then. It was notoriously secretive. I mean, this supposedly went all the way up to freaking government. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about CIA and... What? Yes, yes. The, the planes that were there, that, are, that were there during that time, were being used for drugs. Oh, that's CIA stuff. Yes. Then they would turn around when they came back into uh, Major's Field. They would change the tail number on the on the on the aircraft. Huh. 
Yes, it, it would be it's under e-systems. If I find it, I'd send. I'll send it to you. Yeah, cool. It's a big old long, and it names this guy, um, the judge, Robertson. all in it. Still he was all in it. <laughs> and so this guy was connected to my sister, and I know for a fact he was. It's true that Robertson's name comes up in the article, as well as several others in the justice system. But Robertson's purported role isn't as a participant in anything illegal. In fact, in his responses to the State Commission on Judicial Conduct, Robertson maintains he was acting as an undercover agent in a motorcycle club operating at Lake Tawakoni in the 1990s. And the article appears to suggest he was acting in an anti-drugs capacity. But I'm not going to lie. I went down the rabbit hole on some of this. I'll keep to myself just how much time I spent trying to figure out where this article about e-systems came from. I eventually found out. It's a chapter from a book about the Oklahoma City bombing, written by a guy named David Hoffman. Hoffman's work is somewhat on the fringe. It's hard to tell how seriously to take some of this stuff. From what little I could find about him, there are reports that he got into trouble with law enforcement in Oklahoma in the 1990s, and in 2000, he claimed to be receiving threats relating to his reporting on Raytheon, one of E-System's successors. Around 2002, he was unsuccessfully sued by an FBI official. By 2007, he was apparently depressed, suicidal, and living in Prague. Then in 2010, it was reported that he died in Massachusetts. A man living in Jerusalem spoke about some of Hoffman's struggles in a YouTube video. I sent a public information request to the town where he was said to have died and never heard back. And he was all involved in this e-system scandal for which some people went down. Matter of fact, uh, the guy that hired me, because it went from e-systems to Raytheon to L3. Okay, I know those. Okay. This is the same place, but it would be under e-systems. Um, the guy that hired me, I had always heard, well, he had his foot blown off by a bomb. There was someone placed a bomb in his vehicle at work, and it blew his foot off. Um, E-Systems was the largest employer in Hunt County while all this was going down. Its successor, L3, employs more than 6,000 people here now. In 1995, 60 Minutes profiled the company, tried to speak to executives there. No one ever agreed. And the company even refused to provide promotional material about its operations. Here's a few excerpts from the broadcast. One of them mentions changing tail numbers on international flights. Patricia says her father alluded to that sort of stuff, although he believed the practice was to hide even shadier activities. Gary and intelligence leaders have often relied upon the services of a Texas-based corporation called E-Systems. If you've never heard of it, that's just fine with the company executives. They operate in what is called the black world, a place so secret that it's off limits to all but those who take an oath of secrecy for life. Employees forbidden by law from disclosing anything about their world except to those with an official need to know. Amidst the cow fields and farm roads of Greenville, Texas, located about 50 miles northeast of Dallas, lies the largest division of E-Systems, where big business meets the covert world of espionage. E-Systems employs 16,000 people worldwide and does $2 billion a year in business. It's a Fortune 500 company that's traded on the New York Stock Exchange with 10,000 shareholders. And when it comes to electronic surveillance and sophisticated communication systems, experts will tell you that E-Systems is the best in the world at what it does. But hardly anyone knows exactly what that is. 
of the company's $2 billion in annual sales, 85% of it is classified, according to defense industry experts, and an estimated $800 million involves projects so sensitive that the government publicly denies they even exist. The customer is the Central Intelligence Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and just about every U.S. intelligence agency there is. Over the years, E-Systems has won their trust and gotten to bid on contracts that other companies don't even know exist. Its secret to success? In large part, it knows how to keep a secret. Over the past year, we've made more than a dozen phone calls to E-Systems and one personal visit to company headquarters in Dallas in hopes of getting an interview. Each approach was politely but emphatically rebuffed. The only glimpse we got inside the company comes from this corporate video. We didn't there get it from no E-Systems, they refused to make it available. We got it from the Department of Defense under the Freedom of Information Act. E-Systems is engaged in many significant projects essential to the defense of our country. We do know that it makes highly sophisticated, cutting-edge optical and listening devices used to spy on everyone from dictators to drug lords to terrorists. E-Systems outfitted the so-called Doomsday Plane. It would enable the president to command U.S. forces during a nuclear war. And during the Persian Gulf War, it was E-Systems technology that served as the eyes and the ears of American generals who were able to watch the battle unfold from their offices in the Pentagon. But that's not all that E-Systems does. The company is believed to concoct phony secret contracts with bogus code names and paper trails to mislead potential snoopers both inside and outside the company. And on occasion, according to former employees, workers here at the Greenville plant have been asked to paint over tail numbers on planes suspected of being used on covert operations. And he hired me as an uh, aircraft mechanic. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know about any of this stuff until I started investigating. But my dad did tell me, though, that he knew for a fact that there was planes dropping, um, like, um, he described it as plastic bags. But he said he knew that they were dropping drugs in the Lake Tawakini. And then other people would come to Yes. It's kind of smart, actually. Yeah. They come from the border or something? Um, I don't know where they come from or none of that. I didn't, you know, really, you that's know. That's thing, but man, this story is... So if my sister was tied to that man right there and that man was tied to all this other shit, then how in the hell am I going to find my sister? Wouldn't that explain quite a bit? It's, I don't know. But, I mean... I mean, think about it real hard. I, I mean, you know, I've been living in the Middle East for the last eight years. Really? Yeah, I just, I'm new in a, this radio station. I've been working as a reporter for like seven and a half years in the, and like over there. And like, I hear some crazy shit sometimes, but this is like. <laughs> this, is, this is like a movie. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, what's going to happen next? What turn you got? I didn't know then, and I still don't know now what to do with a lot of this. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Nothing I've discovered reporting this story has indicated there are ties between Kerry's disappearance and government contractors, or that the Hunt County judge was somehow involved with E-Systems. But there's no question that members of Kerry's family perceive links between these Hunt County institutions and believe law enforcement played a role in her disappearance on some level.
And one thing is abundantly clear. You can meet a lot of interesting people in 18 hours, at least in Hunt County. Before closing, I want to tell you briefly about a few more people we know Carrie met that day. One starting right at 6.20 p.m. on the 21st, Glenn Neal Hales. No relation, I think. He's listed as the intake officer. He would be responsible for the hands-on stuff like mugshots, fingerprints, etc. I found Hale's signature on a jail property record indicating that Carrie had $1 in change and $3 in cash. She also had a set of keys, her wallet, and a watch. The card lists four earrings and one rubber ring. It is also signed by Fred McManus, the releasing officer. 19 months and one day after McManus signed that form, a man named Kenneth Melvin was arrested for driving while intoxicated and driving with a suspended license. Melvin was transported to the county jail, and during the time he was booked into jail, he claims, he was harassed by jailers, including the chief jailer, who ordered at least one inmate and several deputy sheriffs to physically beat Melvin. Melvin later filed a lawsuit against multiple people, and it alleged that Hales was involved in the beating by conspiring with the chief jailer to charge Melvin with aggravated assault on a peace officer. Melvin later pled guilty and received a sentence of 11 years in prison. He says he only pled guilty because Hales and the others were prepared to testify falsely against him. He also perceived the plea was the only way he could prevent further beatings, possibly wise under the circumstances. Less than a year later, Hales would be fired amid an internal investigation into allegations by female inmates of jailers providing outside food or drugs in exchange for sex. A Texas Department of Public Safety criminal history search turns up convictions for tampering with a witness, including a deferred judgment for felony witness tampering. Fred McManus, whose signature also appears on the property card, was also investigated during the same period for ordering the inmates beating. It looks like he got out of any trouble related to all that and managed to retire as chief jailer. Hales and McManus were the intake and releasing officers. The first and last men Carrie met between 6.20 p.m. on the 21st and 10.45 a.m. the next morning. What happened next is anybody's guess. is produced by Emma Anderson and me. Its executive producer is Jared Knight. Brad Davis composed the original theme music. Crystal Sid designed the podcast cover art. Brittany Greider is our photographer. Her photos are at ketr.org slash buried along with every episode of this podcast so far. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash buried radio. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. And you can email us at buried at ketr.org. Special thanks to Steve Smith and Jim Barnett. Thanks also to the Quinlan Senior Center and the Quinlan Community Library and Museum. Barry is a production of 88.9 KETR, public media for Northeast Texas. To support Barry and other KETR programming, go to ketr.org and click the red Donate button. And thanks. This show is only made possible by the generosity of listeners just like you. You can help make this show and others from KETR possible by donating now at KETR.org.